Our message this morning is entitled, More Than Conquerors, More Than Conquerors, and we'll direct you back this morning to the book of Romans chapter 8. This past Sunday, we spoke on the subject of enduring sufferings, and we entitled that message, Some Counsel to Those That Suffer, and we talked to you about the practice of crying out to God and to casting our cares upon Him, and we shared with you the great hope that we have in Him, that after this life, and even in the midst of these trials, that God is a deliverer. And because of that, we build up hope within ourselves, and that hope in and of itself is a great deliverance to us. I want to return to the book of Romans chapter 8 today, and again, briefly return to the concept of suffering to share with you some bedrock principles that Paul brings to our attention in the midst of a context about suffering. And these scriptures are some of our most beloved scriptures, our most beloved passages in all of the Word of God. Now, as we said last week, it isn't a matter of if we suffer, but a matter of when we suffer and how we suffer. And depending on the person that you talk to, every one of us are individuals. We have our own individual trials. We have our own individual struggles. Some of us struggle with health problems. Some of us struggle with relational problems. Some of us struggle with financial problems. We have fears. We have tribulations. We have trials. We live in a world that is completely full of suffering and sorrow because of the sin of Adam. And I don't have to remind you about the fact that all suffering in this world comes from the sin of Adam. When God created the world in the beginning of time, He created a perfect world. He created a paradise that was not only good, but very good. And through the sin of Adam, the fall of man into sin, the world became cursed for our sake. By the sweat of our face, we toil and we labor in the world to be able to even survive. And though we have it very, very blessed in this country, and we're very pampered and sheltered in this country with all the money that we have and all the food that we have, with the air conditioning we have and the clothing we have, so much so that you know your kids can go into their room and take everything out of their dresser, and you don't even know how you got everything in the dresser to start with, if it's anything like in my home. With all of the blessings we have in this country, we cannot escape suffering. If there was ever a country in the history of the world in which we could escape suffering, it would be this one, wouldn't it? And yet we cannot escape. Why? Because we live in a fallen world. Again, it's not a matter of if we suffer, but when we suffer and how we suffer. And every one of us has a different life to live in that regard. We have our own different, distinct Suffering, And as we said last week, one of you may suffer from a chronic illness that hurts, and one of you may suffer from a stroke or the risk of a heart attack at any given time. Some of you may deal with cancers, but all of our suffering is important to God. And none of us should think that my suffering isn't as important to the Lord as in other persons. We all suffer, and our suffering is important to our Savior. He is a high priest that is touched by the feeling of our infirmities. Paul describes various types of suffering, just to review briefly, as he pens his book of Romans. And he's writing this epistle to the church at Rome. 
He is addressing various things. One of the constant themes in the book of Romans early on is the depravity of man. And he begins speaking about concepts such as justification and the fact that Christ would die for those who were even his enemies. By the time Paul comes to Romans chapter 7, he's now speaking of the types of sufferings that we endure in this world as people who are born of the Spirit of God. Now, we spoke last week primarily about the types of suffering that we experience that is external, but today I want to draw your focus on the fact that every single one of us, if we belong to Christ and we are born of His Spirit, have an internal suffering that we never knew before we came to know Christ. What is this suffering? Paul describes it as an internal warfare, the flesh against the Spirit. He describes himself as carnal, sold under sin in Romans chapter 7. In verse 14, he says in verse 15, For that which I do, I allow not, but what I would, that do I not, but what I hate, that do I. What is he telling us? There are things that I don't tolerate that I find myself doing. There are things that I want to do, would, there, what I would, that do I not, is a derivative of will. The will is our desire, our intent. This is why legal documents don't say will, but shall, by the way. And it's why our final will and testament is our last wishes. Simple words like that we use every day. We don't even understand the definitions of sometimes. But a man's will is his desire. That which I would, what I would, that do I not. I don't do good things that I want to do, but what I hate, that do I. As a born-again person, we still possess the nature of the flesh, and because of that, we do things sometimes that we despise. We despise when they occur in general in the world. We despise when they occur in our life. And what does that cause us to do? It causes us to lament what we've done and to loathe our struggling, suffering state in the world. If then I do... That which I would not, I consent unto the law, it is good. It is not the law's fault. It is not God's fault. God forbid. Now then, it is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. Now here's a point that I want to notice just briefly as we work through some of this language today, just setting up the concept of suffering and God's remedy for that. I think you'll find it amazing how in the midst of a context about suffering, God gives us the strongest language about His sovereignty and salvation that is written in the entire Bible. When we sin, it is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. Does that mean that Paul is a robot to sin? No. But the real you, the real you, is you as you stand in Christ. Why you sin is because of the nature of sin that still resides in you. But beloved, the real you is the you that God sees. How does God see you? He sees you through His Son. And so when God looks at you, He doesn't see the sin that you committed this morning, or yesterday, or last week, or in your teenage years, or in your childhood. And we come forth from the womb speaking lies. We're shapen in iniquity. We're conceived in sin. Our lives until Christ are unbroken, perpetual sin. We have this idea sometimes that human beings are either sort of good or mostly neutral. But without Christ, we are nothing but sin. So says the word of God. 
He that sinneth, according to the book of First John chapter 3, and that word conveys the idea of only sinning prior to being born of the Spirit. That is all we do. You think about it. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. We have no faith to serve God prior to the new birth. And the new birth, faith is sparked. Everything we do prior to the new birth is sin, an abomination before God. Even if it's something that is considered to be wholesome or not necessarily transgression, it's tainted by and marred by sin. If you go to work, if you pay your taxes, those things are honorable things. But even the things that we would do that you might even consider neutral are marred by sin, and therefore that which is worthy of condemnation in the sight of God. I want you to understand how bad it is by nature, how bad things are by nature. Now then, it is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. I do things that I hate because there's a nature of sin that resides in me. Can you sympathize? Yes, you can. For I know that in me, parenthetical statement, that is in my flesh, and by that he has reference to the nature of the flesh, dwelleth no good thing. There's no good thing, not one good thing in the nature of the flesh that we inherited from Adam. How did you inherit that nature? You inherited it by birth. How is it that you inherited the nature of the spirit? You inherited it by birth, but a different birth from a different source that results in a different nature. John chapter 3. I know that in me, that is in my flesh, dwelleth no good thing. Any goodness that we have, listen to me, comes directly from our Savior Jesus Christ. We've been made partakers of the divine nature. The good that you do comes from God. We owe to Him the ability to perform that which we desire to. He works, in other words, to will and to do of His good pleasure, as He said in Philippians. He doesn't do the good things for you, but He enables you and He burdens you to do that which is pleasing in His sight. He says, for to will is present with me, the desire to do good things, but how to perform that which is good... I find not. Sometimes I simply can't muster up the ability to do that which is good, even though I desire to. And sometimes even when we would do that which is good, guess what he says? Evil is present with me. For the good that I would I do not, but the evil which I would not, that I do. Now if I do that I would not, it is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me... I find then a law that when I would do good, evil is present with me. I delight in the law of God after the inward man. The inward man is a metaphor for this nature that you have through Christ. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Jesus living in you, the spirit of his son sent into your heart, crying, Abba, Father. I delight in the law of God after the inward man. There's a part of a born-again child of God that delights in righteousness. But I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity of the law of sin, which is in my members. Oh, wretched man that I am. Oh, wretched man that I am. Who shall deliver me from the body of this death? When you read the words of Paul, one observation that you can take from this passage is that he is suffering. 
He is suffering. Last week we focused mainly on the external sufferings. But as we begin to frame our message today, I want you to understand that there are inward sufferings that we all experience. Things that we lament. Sometimes there are battles that only you experience in your mind, in your heart, and no one else in the world knows what you're going through. Maybe sometimes we feign a smile. How are you doing? I'm doing all right. I'm doing pretty good. The pleasantries of life. How are you doing? They stretch out their hand to shake your hand. I'm doing great. How about you? When on the inside, you're not doing great. You're struggling with sin or with guilt, with things that you despise, even within yourself that you don't even know how to deal with. Oh, wretched man that I am. Who shall deliver me from the body of this death? And he answers his question in verse 25. I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. There is deliverance from that in Christ. Not only eternally as we're resurrected in glorified bodies as we'll talk about today. But there's deliverance in our day-to-day lives through the Lord Jesus Christ as we cast all our care on him for he careth for you. That isn't merely conveying emotion, he careth for you, but that word careth is literally saying that God is the provider for you. Our scripture reading this morning was from Psalm 23. Is there any doubt in your mind that David understood that Jesus cared for him? A shepherd cares for the sheep. He provides for the sheep. A sheep is a very defenseless creature. I've seen pictures of sheep that got lost and wandered away from the fold and As the wool grows and grows and grows, the sheep becomes more and more weighted down so that it can hardly even move. What an easy target it is for a wolf to pick apart a sheep and to drag it away and consume it. God is our shepherd. We all have struggles. We all have problems. Many times the problems we experience are on the inside of our mind and heart and no one else even knows what we're going through except for the Lord Jesus. And there is deliverance in our day-to-day lives because God is our shepherd and he does deliver us. He cares for us. He provides for us. As Paul speaks about suffering in Romans 7, he deals with the inner struggle. In chapter 8, Paul deals with the general struggling of this world first and then the special sufferings of the follower of Christ. We used this passage last week as we spoke about the sufferings of this present time and the fact that they're not worthy to be compared to the glory that will be revealed in us. But in verse 22 of Romans chapter 8, we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now. As a woman travails in childbirth, so does this world around us travail because of sin. It's a broken world. We see glimpses of this from time to time. What did we all hide from Wednesday night or Thursday night? I was a couple of states away, and Thursday night, this bow echo comes through, and every time it breaks, it creates a tornado, and people's houses are destroyed, and everyone who didn't experience the destruction of their house faced flooding, and roads were closed. And I know that everything that was experienced there was experienced here just the day before, and I was watching it on social media and seeing 
businesses and schools and churches closing on Wednesday. That's the groaning of this world, the world that is broken and marred by sin. The whole creation travaileth and groaneth in pain together until now. That is suffering. Specifically to the child of grace, Romans chapter 8 And we talked about this last week. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And then he goes on to describe the types of suffering. Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, or sword. As it is written, for thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Now I've been very selective in the verses that I've read from this chapter thus far. This appears to be very devastating and very terrible, doesn't it? There are passages that I intentionally omitted so that as we come to them, you'll see that though this world does its very best to destroy you, and though this world is oftentimes a place of suffering, in all these things, because of the work of Christ, notice verse 37, we are more than conquerors. Now think about that for just a minute. I have embellished suffering. Suffering in your own heart, in your mind, with the flesh, with sin. Suffering in a creation that groans in pain until now. Until this very present moment. Storms and floods and volcanoes and earthquakes and pestilences. A world that is cursed with sin so that good things are difficult and bad things are prevalent. Thorns and thistles over the good things of this world like flowers and food. And yet in all of this, we are more than conquerors, though we are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Does that not sound as an oxymoron to you? How can I be counted more than a conqueror, though I am a sheep taken out to slaughter? A struggling sheep in a broken world experience experiencing any and every negative thing that a person can experience. And yet in that, I am more than a conqueror. I want to consider today the bedrock principles that cause us to overcome eventually every single affliction. This past week, I made reference to this a moment ago, I had the privilege of preaching to a series of churches in the Stanley County, North Carolina area. And our study passage every night was Romans chapter 8, verses 29 and 30. And we took each of these, what we will call phases of our salvation, individually each night. As I shared with him, so I share with you. When we talk about Romans chapter 8, verses 29 and 30, 9 out of 10 times, if not a complete 10 out of 10 times, the reason that we bring this to someone's attention is to correct their understanding of how a person is saved. Isn't that one of the most important questions that's ever been asked in the history of the world? Job asked it in the book of Job chapter 9. I know it is of a truth, but how shall a man be just with God? How shall a man be just with God? God is holy. 
Look up in a concordance the words justice and judgment coupled together. Get on a blue letter Bible or some concordance when you get home and look up the words justice and judgment as they are paired. And you will see that God loves justice and judgment. God is a God of justice and judgment. We do well when we pursue justice and judgment. God is of purer eyes, Habakkuk chapter 1, than to behold iniquity. Even the great man of God, Moses, said, God, let me look at you. And he says, you, you can't look at me. No man can look at me and live. I'll put you on a rock. I'll hide you with my hand. And as I pass by, you can then behold my hinder parts. You can watch me as I go in departure. Every man who ever viewed God in his glory by way of vision in the Bible fell on his face. Many times it's a dead man. God is holy. And because God is holy and because we are sinful and because God is a God of justice and judgment. How is it that a man shall be just with God? These passages answer that question. But so many times we present them from the perspective of what you believe about salvation isn't right. Here is what the truth is. Now let me share this with you. By the way, that is a good, legitimate, reasonable usage of this passage of Scripture. Scripture reproves us. It corrects us. But was Paul writing a thesis here in Romans chapter 8 against salvation by works? When he wrote Romans chapter 8 verses 29 and 30? Was Paul writing an expose of Arminianism in Romans chapter 8? No. There were times that Paul would do things such as that. The book of Galatians is one example. The book of Hebrews is another. But Paul doesn't write these eternal principles that I'm going to read for you in just a moment in the midst of a context about false doctrine. He writes them in the midst of a context about suffering. Paul's golden chain of salvation, if you will, in Romans chapter 8, verses 29 and 30, are not there then to correct our understanding of salvation, but to emphatically declare to us that no matter how bad the world around us gets, the salvation of God is so inalterably fixed, set in stone, ordered in all things ensure, that in the affliction of this life we are more than conquerors through our Savior who loved us. Romans 8, 29 and 30 is there to help you when you suffer. Now let's read it. For whom he did foreknow, he did predestinate to be conformed to the image of His Son, that He might be the firstborn among many brethren. What has Paul lamented throughout an entire chapter of Romans chapter 7? The present struggle of the sin of the flesh versus the spirit that is now within us, the inner man. There's coming a day when we will be completely conformed to the image of His Son, and that type of suffering will never be again. Moreover, whom He did predestinate, them He also called. And whom He called, them He also justified. 
And whom he justified, them he also glorified. Now I want you to notice something. It is the same group that was foreknown that was predestinated. The same group that was predestinated that was called. The same group that was called that was justified. And the same group that was justified that will be glorified in the second coming of Christ. Without the loss of one. It is an identical salvation to everyone to whom it applies. Sometimes salvation is described that God the Father chose some. Jesus wants to save everyone and the Holy Spirit will quicken everyone that lets him. But God foreknew, God predestinated, God called, God justified, and God will glorify So much so that every one of these is written not in the future tense, but in the past tense. Understand, when Paul wrote these words, you were not yet called because you were not yet born. And none of us are yet glorified except for Enoch and Elijah in the Old Testament. They're the only two sinful human beings who have a body in glory. They're glorified. They're glorified. Paul writes this to comfort us in the midst of our afflictions. That's so amazing. What does it do? It takes our focus off of the present struggle and it steers our eyes. It focuses our vision on the eternal, on the deliverance, the great answer to all of life's problems. There's coming a day, child of God, when you will be glorified and there will be no more cancers, there will be no more migraines, there will be no more stomach problems, there will be no more Parkinson's, there will be no more strokes, no more heart attacks, no more car wrecks, no more floods, no more tornadoes, no more earthquakes, no more hurricanes, no more forest fires, no more mudslides. God will perfect you in a perfect world where there is no separating you from the love of God, where there is no enemy, where there is no pain, where there is no sickness, no sorrow, nor death, and you will exist conformed to the image of His dear Son forevermore. No more moments of sorrow, no more worry, no more fear, but you and the entire rest of your true family will be before Him and the glorious part of all of that is not just that you don't suffer for what you have done, because if we got what we deserve, because God is a God of justice and judgment, what I deserve is separation from Him for all of eternity, because I am condemned. I am a sinner, and you are a sinner. But the glorious thing about heaven isn't just that you're delivered from what you deserve as a freed prisoner because someone paid the ransom of your debt, the glorious thing about heaven is that you experience and you enjoy God for all of eternity. Now, what's that going to be like? Well, I have not seen nor has ear heard. I don't know what that's going to be like. Sometimes we paint it as this, this never-ending association meeting where we're all billions of us in a room and I guess Jesus is the song leader and we're all sitting there singing and we sing every verse of how firm a foundation for the 14 billionth time. I don't know what heaven is like, but I know that it's going to be interesting. I know that it's going to be captivating. I know that it's going to be intimate. I know that it is going to be the greatest joy, so much so 
that all of the sufferings altogether of this present world are not even worthy to be compared to the glory that shall be revealed in you. I don't know what it's like, but I know that it is so glorious that we can't even imagine it here, and I can imagine an awful lot. I can imagine an awful lot. Let's back up to verse 26. As we think about suffering in this world, as we begin to build into Romans chapter 8, verses 29 and 30, I want to share you what, with you what Paul does leading to this passage. Likewise, the Spirit also helpeth our infirmities. Now, what did Paul say in the passages before this? What had Paul written in the passages before this? We are saved by hope. But hope that is seen is not hope, for what a man seeth, why does he yet hope for it? In other words, if you have something, you no longer hope for it. It's very simple. One of the ways that we endure the afflictions of this life is that we are saved by hope, the hope of a better day, the hope of deliverance from the affliction. We are delivered by that. Likewise, at the same time, the Spirit helps our infirmities. Not only are we delivered from our infirmities through hoping, and again, as we defined it last week, hope doesn't mean a wish. You know, you can get a, I mentioned this last week, you go get a lottery ticket and waste however much dollars that they cost, and it's always a waste of money. I made the joke last week, you've got a better chance of getting struck by lightning while being eaten by a shark in Lake Logan Martin, which is fresh water and there are no sharks. It's just, it doesn't happen. You might hope that you have that winning lottery ticket, but hope biblically is an expectation, an earnest expectation. We use the word earnest expectation because the word earnest means a down payment. You have a little bit of that living in you right now. Faith is the evidence of things not seen, the substance of things hoped for. You're born of God. God lives in you. He testifies you within you. You've received an unction, an anointing from the Spirit and that's a tiny little glimpse into what you have awaiting you. Likewise, the Spirit also helpeth our infirmities. For we know not what we should pray for as we ought. I think all of us have been in that condition where we don't really know how to articulate what we're asking for in prayer. But the Holy Spirit... Even when we are unable to articulate what we're asking for, He helps our infirmities because the Spirit itself maketh intercession for us with groanings that cannot be uttered. The Holy Spirit lives within you and He knows what you need. He knows what you think. He knows what you feel. And He makes petitions on your behalf even when you cannot verbalize what you need to God. Isn't that such a comforting thing to think about? Now we're building up to Romans 8, 29 and 30. And he that searcheth the hearts, who searches the hearts? Who divides asunder between soul and spirit and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart? Hebrews chapter 4, the Lord Jesus Christ, our high priest. The spirit makes intercessions in you with groanings that cannot be uttered. And he that searcheth the hearts, Christ, knows what is the mind of the spirit because he maketh intercession for the saints according to the will of God, which is properly God the Father. 
And so God the Spirit pleads to God the Son who pleads, makes intercession to God the Father on your behalf in your daily struggles. Now read verse 28. This is one of the most misunderstood verses in all of the Bible. And we know that all things work together for them that love God, for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to His purpose. Verse 28 begins with and, doesn't it? It's directly tied to the context. It's often presented today that everything that happens in your life will, in and of itself, in its raw form, be made to work together for your good by God. But this doesn't say that we know that God makes everything that happens to you work together for good. It says, and we know that all things work together for good. Might I submit to you an alternative? view of that. I think it was Elder David Powell who said here, I heard the sermon on cassette 18 years ago, that if that meant that everything, period, works together for the good of God's people, that would be an unprecedented statement in all of the Bible. I've remembered that quote ever since. When a wicked man murders an innocent little child, well, that sin is not working together for that child's good. Everybody say Amen. Amen. How then are we to understand Romans 8.28? Everything that God does for you is for your good. And in everything that God does for you, God is synergized. Now we lose this in translation. The words work together come from the Greek word synergio. And it's the word from which we get our English word synergize. What happens when something synergizes? Like gears in a clock, they go together, they work together, they're in harmony. God, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are synergized on your behalf so that everything God does for you, either in this life or in the world to come, in groanings that cannot be uttered, in deliverances from affliction and eternally, foreknowing, predestinating, calling, justifying, and glorifying, everything God does for you not only works together for your good, but God is working together for your good. The three-in-one God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. There are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. Everything God does for you, whether it be individually, the three persons of the Godhead, the Father, the Son, or the Holy Ghost, they work together as one Godhead, one God, and all that they do for you is for your good. God never does anything that is not for your good to you. What an amazing thought is that. Even if it's affliction, because chastening sometimes bears many forms of affliction. Is chastening for your good when God chastens you? Now, do you like it? Any of you little children walk up to your mom and dad and say, You know what? I really deserve a good beating. My room is a mess. There's Play-Doh on the ceiling and somebody stuck bologna to the wall. Rachel worked so hard this week cleaning the living room, and yesterday I get home from North Carolina, and there's popcorn kernels all under the love seat. Why are there popcorn kernels under the love seat? Does the love seat eat popcorn kernels? Does it grow popcorn kernels? Things like that make parents angry. <laughs> Lord, have mercy. 
Do, do any children walk up to their parents and say, you know, I really deserve a good beating. I think I should be grounded for a couple of weeks. Nobody does that. But when the parent chastens their child, it is for their child's good, isn't it? Even in chastening, what God does for us is for our good. Everything God does for you is for your good. Praise God. We have a God that is for us, not against us. That language sounds familiar, doesn't it? comes from a few verses later. God is for us. And he has synergized Father, Son, and Holy Spirit on your behalf. I love this passage of Scripture. In the Godhead, God is synergized on your behalf. All that God does is for your good, whether in this life, verse 27, or things that affect your eternal state, verses 29 and 30. God is working for your good. Why? Because you are those who are called according to His purpose. Now, in introducing the thought of calling according to His purpose, Paul begins to elaborate on what it means to be called according to His purpose. How is it that you are saved? For whom He did foreknow, He also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of His Son. God foreknew you. Now, this is not mere omniscience. God is omniscient. He knows all. Omni, all, science, knowledge. Omniscient. God is omniscient. God knew that Esau existed, but God did not foreknow Esau. Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. I was talking with a dear sister this past week who's reading for the first time in great depth through the book of Genesis, and she was talking to me. She said, you know, for the first time I read the story of Jacob and Esau, and when I go back and read it, I don't really like either of them. <laughs> Jacob is a rotten guy. If you read the story of Jacob and Esau, you realize that it's not that they're both good guys that God sends one away, or that they're a good guy and a bad guy, and God chooses the good guy. They're both rotten. They're both rotten. We're all rotten. God loved Jacob, and he called Jacob according to his purpose, and Jacob became a different man. God even changed his name. What was the name of Jacob after God changed his name? Israel. Israel. Wrestles with God. Jacob meant supplanter or deceiver. And he changed his name from supplanter to wrestles with God. We go from being a supplanter to a wrestler with God as God calls us and changes us by his grace. We sang this morning, Nearer My God to Thee. And it's one of my favorite hymns. I'm thankful that it's in our hymnal and that we get to sing it. We could sing it every Sunday if I were concerned, if it was up to me. Do you know what story, what life story that hymn is taken from? Jacob. It's taken from the life of Jacob. This dear sister said, I don't, I don't like either of them. That's the thing about grace. It takes people that you wouldn't like, people with no value, nothing of worth, but because God loves us, He calls us according to His purpose. To be foreknown of God means that we were foreloved of God. The word no to a Hebrew, to a Jew, means to love. And it implies an intimate marital love. For instance, when Adam knew his wife Eve, she conceived and bare unto him a son. To know someone means to love them. God didn't foreknew that you would choose Him or accept Him 
or love Him or pursue Him because in the book of Psalms, twice we read that God looked down from heaven among the children of men to see if there were any that did seek after Him. They are all gone astray. The book of Romans chapter 3 cites that passage when it says, There's none that doeth good, no, not one. There's none that seeks after God. There's none that understandeth God. You say, I'm in a room on a Sunday morning seeking after God because God has called you according to His purpose because you were different. You've been made to be different. You're no longer Jacob. You're Israel. Because God loved you. For whom He did foreknow, He knew you. This is synonymous with the concept of choosing you. Ephesians 1.4, According as He has chosen us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love. God chose you to be holy and to stand before Him in holiness, in love, and that will be finally culminated at the end of the time, at the end of the world, at the end of existence in this world. Whom He did foreknow, He also did predestinate. I've said it every time we use that word. Don't be afraid of that word. That's not a scary word. God didn't predestinate anyone to hell. Why is there a hell? Because we are judged if we don't have a Savior according to our works. And that demands hell. Hell was made for the devil and his angels. Why is there a hell? Because of the devil and his angels. Predestination is always used in the positive, and it has reference in the Bible to one of two things in the original language and only one thing in English. In the original language, this word can have reference to the salvation of God's people and Christ going to the cross. In other words, that was a time that God had determined before for things to be done. The word is exclusively used with reference to salvation. Either the work of it on the cross or our end predestinated to set our destiny before to full conformity to the image of God's dear Son, Jesus, that Jesus might be the firstborn among many brethren. What predestination means is that God set your destiny after this world is burned and everything is over. You will stand before Him without spot, without blemish, sin-free, without the flesh, in full conformity to His Son, a nature in uniformity with the nature of His Son, completely righteous, completely holy. This doesn't mean that you'll have nail prints in your hand and a, a spear hole in your side and the imprints of the crown of thorns. You'll be you. And the you that is placed in the ground, the body that is placed in the ground will be raised again, but it will be raised and it will be changed and it will be glorified. Moreover, whom He did predestinate. And by the way, by the way, let me correct something. That he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Anyone that teaches the concepts of election and predestination and it makes it just a few, just a little handful, you know, the, the frozen chosen, they don't understand the concept. Because Jesus has a people out of every nation and kindred and tribe and tongue. He has a people so great that no one can number them as innumerable as the stars of the sky and the sands of the sea. God not only chose a few, God chose a countless multitude out of the race of Adam because He loved them. Now you might wonder, why did God love me? Would you believe that 
there's never in Scripture an answer to the question of why God loved you, other than to say that it pleased Him to love you. That is the miracle of all miracles for all of eternity. Why did God love me? I've sinned against Him. Speaking with some friends this week, the question was asked, they read about if you dig a hole and you don't take care of it or you got an ox that gets out and goes and it mars somebody, you could face death for all of these different things that you do. And they said, doesn't that seem harsh? And I said, that reveals God's righteous standard. A God that has such a righteous standard. Every single sin is an act of civil war and rebellion and defiance against His holiness. And even taking one bite of a forbidden fruit condemns a race to eternity in hell because He is holy and sin is atrocious. And yet despite my sin, my open rebellion, my ongoing civil war as an enemy, Christ died for me because the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit did love me and covenant together before the world began to save me. Mystery of mysteries. Why did God love us? Maybe when we get to glory, that's one of the first things that we can ask Him. And I think the answer will be because it was pleasing to me to do so. You see, God loves us with an everlasting love, according to Jeremiah. God never started loving you. There was never a time before it. But as eternal as God is Himself, from everlasting to everlasting, thou art God. God has loved you. That's going to come into play in hour two of our message today. <laughs> I had all week to practice. Those that He predestinated, He called. That refers to the call of the Holy Spirit, a call from death unto life. I can call you with the gospel over and over and over, and until you've been given ears to hear, you will not receive the preaching of the cross. It is foolishness to them that perish. But God the Spirit does call us. If you want to read further about this, write John chapter 3, John chapter 5, John chapter 6, Ephesians chapter 2, Titus chapter 3. We've been called with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to His own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began. 1 Timothy chapter, 2 Timothy chapter 1. Read verses 8 through 10. God called you from death and sin to life in Christ by the immediate working of the Holy Spirit. As Jesus went to the tomb of Lazarus and said, Lazarus, come forth, and Lazarus came forth, so did your dead soul rise from death and sin to life in Christ. And you are a new creature in Christ Jesus. You are born of God. In a birth, the baby is completely passive. The way some of ours hate getting out of bed, if it was up to them, Rachel would still be carrying them. The baby's passive in conception. The baby's passive in birth. The universe, we're new creatures, we're new acts of creation, created unto good works, His workmanship, a creation is passive in creation, isn't it? When God said, let there be light, the light didn't say, you know, it's a good idea. I think I'm going to accept your proposal. It simply came into being in a resurrection. When a dead man is laying there dead and God comes to the dead man and says, live, the dead man has no choice but to come to life. That's what happened to your soul at the call of the Spirit. And whom he called, them he also justified. 
Jesus Christ paid your sin debt upon the cross of Calvary, and because of that, you are legally righteous in the sight of a holy God. God can by no means clear the guilty, as we read in God's words to Moses in the book of Exodus. As we read here in Isaiah 53, and I'll give you this as a homework assignment, we read about the fact that all we like sheep have gone astray. What did we read? Psalm 23, that we're God's sheep. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Look at verse 10. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the travail of his soul, and shall be satisfied by his knowledge. Shall my righteous servant, what? Justify many. Justify many. When Jesus was made to be sin for us who knew no sin. We were made the righteousness of God in Him. God looks at you as if you are not guilty. Not merely that the sentence had been issued not guilty. Not merely that you were acquitted, but Jesus took all of your debt to God and paid it in full so that you stand before God as if you had lived the very life that Jesus lived when He was here in the world. He never violated the law of God, and He kept the law of God to a jot and a tittle. He was perfect in all things, and tempted in all points like as are we, yet without sin. We are justified through the shedding of the blood of Jesus once forever. And whom He justified, them He also glorified. In the resurrection, according to 1 Corinthians 13, we will be raised again with glorified bodies. That which is sown in corruption, two words, is raised incorruptible, one word. It is sown in sin and iniquity and death. But this body, in which is the nature of Adam, the nature of the flesh, this body will be raised again, and the word that Paul uses to describe it is what? Glory. The word glory in Scripture is synonymous with that of a glowing or a shining. When Jesus was transfigured into His glory before the apostles, what did He look like? He was glowing so brightly that His clothes were bleached. So that Paul says, when incorruption, or when this corruption shall have put on incorruption, and this mortal shall have put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? Thanks be to God which giveth us the victory through Jesus Christ. Now let's finish Romans chapter 8. Just read this. With all the strugglings in mind and all that God has done for you in foreknowing you, predestinating, calling, justifying, and glorifying you, what shall we say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? He that spared not his own son but delivered us delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? There's no price that you pay because there's no price you could pay. Jesus paid the price for you. Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. If God paid your debt, who is he that condemns you? In fact, that's what Paul says. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died, yea, rather, that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? Do you see the totally different perspective 
on all of these sufferings from how we considered them last week. We looked at these as terrible things that we face, terrible things that happen to us. But Paul mentions these here to embellish Christ and to say that we have victory over all of them through the work of Jesus so much that we would smile in the face of the persecutor. As it is written, for thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. The affliction of the flesh, life in a broken world where we cry out to God for deliverance, and even the tribulation and persecution that befalls us at the hands of wicked men. In all of these things, we are more than conquerors. Why? Because God is for us. And if He is for us, who can be against us? I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much. We, we don't even have the words to pray to thank you for the grace that you've given us. We don't know why you've been so kind to us. You made a beautiful creation, and our, our race rebelled against you, and we became your enemies in our father Adam, and we lived our lives in animosity and in enmity against you. We were haters of God and haters one another, but you called us by your grace, you justified us by the shedding of your son's blood, you knew us before the world began, and you set our destiny to be conformed to his glorious image. Father, we, we don't understand why you'd love us so much, but we know that we have eternity to try to figure it out. And we pray, Father, that we spend eternity praising you for the goodness and the glory of your holiness. And now, Father, as we dismiss, we pray, Lord, that we don't wait to eternity to begin praising your holy name for all that you've done for us. But we pray that we do it here. We pray that we would begin today if we've never praised you before. For thou art worthy. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.